despite your therapist's repeated warnings, you're still listening to Two Girls, One Podcast, a weekly internet broadcast that asks and answers one simple question. What if Lindsay's vagina could talk? What would it say? And would it have its own podcast? Find out right now with your hosts, Alison Goldberg and Lindsay Ford. Hi, everyone. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Allie. And we are the two girls of this one podcast. And on this show, we talk about cool, weird corners of the internet. And today is a, um, I don't know what you would call it. It's a, it's a long-standing corner. It's a corner I've <laughs> known about for so long, but don't understand and have never actually even attempted to use. And that is... Second Life. I also have known about it for forever and have never really done it, never gone into it, never, you know, forced one of my friends who does Second Life life to show me how it works. I was just like, oh, okay, that's cool. I guess it's where my (laughs) friends go to pretend they're rock stars or dragons or something. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of the communities we cover, even if I don't understand them or I'm not a part of them, like, you know... Maybe it's a weird Facebook group. I've been on Facebook or a subreddit. I've been right, on Reddit. Yeah. Or even when we <laughs> um, looked into Kmart in VR, I I did go. I visited, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. But I don't – I've never we've, – we've talked about Second Life before for sure. We actually covered Second Life brothels, which are still confusing to me because, again, it's just like digital porn. Although that interview was so interesting, Lindsay. If you haven't listened to it, it was like women of color – who were basically told they had to choose white avatars and so they went and made their own brothel in Second Life. There was some wild, wild story there. Wow. Yeah, it was like surprisingly interesting and like feminist and stuff. But yes, there's a lot of wild stuff going on in Second Life, but now they're celebrating their 20-year anniversary and this writer, reporter, James who I believe was a reporter within Second Life and had like a reporter avatar, but he, he's he been covering Second Life for a long time. And so he wrote about its 20-year anniversary. And that's who we're going to speak to, which is really exciting. And we're going to speak to someone who sells goods within Second Life and makes a living that way. You know, more power to them. I love it so much. Here I am slaving away, making a living in the real world. Should we be trying to make a living in the virtual <laughs> world? Like, is that yeah, more you're lucrative? Doing it, you're doing it wrong. I don't know. I think wrong. you would be... I think it's not easy either way. No. <laughs> I, there's a lot of stuff I don't know about how to do things virtually that I would have to learn. Yeah, we'd, have, then, we'd have to learn to like code. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your girl is not going to be able to do it. Uh, episode 137 from June 2020 is Second Life Sex Workers. If anyone is interested in scrolling on back to Oh, wow. To it that. was a deep pandemic episode? It must, yeah, it must have been. Wow. Like deep, deep pandemic. I also feel like Lindsay joined us like the next week maybe. Yeah, no, that was, it was very, a year before before I joined. I joined June 2021. Oh. That's right. That's oh, okay, right. Okay, okay, okay. Please go listen. If you have not heard that, go listen. Wowie wowie. Great episode. It was sort of funny. There was a someone in our Discord recently 
who was like, yeah, I just found your podcast and I'm starting from the beginning. And I think she messaged or, or, or he or they, I'm not sure when they reached the pandemic, you know, it's like, right. <laughs> that's amazing. It's a bizarre time capsule. I also think if I went back and listened to the beginning, I would be referencing all these dates that I don't even remember going on. Yes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I couldn't probably couldn't tell you like who the person was. Like, it's weird to listen to your own voice and be like, I have no idea what the fuck she's talking about. Absolutely. That's hilarious. I need AI to sort through it because I'm not going to go listen to like 20 hours of audio that I've already listened to twice and before, but I want to feed it into a robot and then process it and be like, okay, ChatGPT, how many dates did Allie go on? (laughs) Well, I actually think it would be cool to be able to sort it by topic a little bit. So I've thought about this with Dan Savage's podcast where it's like, I have friends that are thinking of like trying like polyamory and it's like, it'd be cool to be like, (laughs) oh, click here and it brings up every single one of his episodes that does a deep dive into polyamory. You know, I think it'd be cool if ours was like, you click here, you get every fetish episode, you click here, you get every episode related to coding or, you know what I mean? I don't know. I think it'd be cool or every episode related to VR. But that's what AI is for. Right. No, I love that idea with Two Girls, One Podcast. Not for my dates, but for like our topic. It's like, hey, here's me, 20th century guy being like, well, I guess I'll Google how many episodes we did covered for Second Life and then put them into an email and blah, blah, blah. And that takes like two hours. Or I can just ask a robot to say, hey, what, how many did we do? And it will just spit out the information, assuming it has the context and has pulled our data out of the internet, you know, which it may or may not have done. But I, I guess what I mean, like our kids will do that naturally and we'll we will have some catching up to do i suppose when we use ai as a tool right now we're pretty good at googling but chat gpting is an emerging skill i guess is my point <laughs> what an emerging skill they're paying people shit tons of money just to be prompt engineers is what they're calling it like wow. figuring out wait can i do that yeah you can <laughs> i don't know exactly like how you apply but i i read something about like people and about artists making a shit ton of money doing this because fascinating you're just helping it ruin us but anyway (laughs) (laughs) you might as well cash the checks on the way down yeah i probably shouldn't based on my actual stance on most things i absolutely should not do that job well i don't know if we've talked about it i'm launching a new show comedians versus ai for shits and gigs Mm. and i did it for the first time and i have a lot of thoughts now about ai how'd it go i think from my perspective i need to the games need a bit more structuring and there's a lot of things i learned that i knew i would only learn by doing it but the Mm. show has legs for sure like the audience Mm -hmm. was into it as an audience member I agree. Oh, you went. I thought it was interesting, Lindsay. I don't know if you felt this way. I actually thought it was interesting how much it paled in comparison to the comedians who were able to mm-hmm. move the room. I mean, then one of the comedians, again, we can talk about it later, did a final song and the whole audience just like rose to their feet. I mean, it was phenomenal. <laughs> I bet that was him. I also need to figure out how to foolproof it so it works even when we don't have Brad, who was so incredible. But like... It was so interesting to see that like, so the final song, the AI took my voice and made a song, but it's still in the context of a theater was like, ew, okay. (laughs) Like it didn't. Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't funny. The humor isn't there yet. The the AI is not naturally humorous. True. Right. But it's not even that. It was like, it's complete inability to connect with the audience as opposed to this person walking around performing and looking in your eyes and doing callbacks and being funny and being Mm -hmm. clever and unexpected. I mean, it was really fascinating how it 
paled in comparison. Sure. Well, I think it would be interesting because the AI base is based on the prompts. So it's also like, it, could Kyle have given it funnier prompts and then the AI could have been funnier? Yeah. I also think, no offense to Kyle, but I think that actually my biggest thing that I need to look at is how the role of the AI is positioned. Is it a comedian who learns the tech because the tech's actually not that hard? Is it someone in the booth on a God mic? I think I'm actually going to try both mm. of these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, there's, there's, I mean, it was interesting because when I first did Love Isn't Blind, th- there were some changes, but for the most part, I was like, this works. First go, I was like, these are the games locked and loaded. The, the, the formula was, you had it. Yeah, we and like, we, we understand as a society how dating shows work, right? But this mm-hmm. is like, oh, I'm using AI live on stage, which I don't have any idea how that <laughs> That will go. Nobody does, right? So it was really. I mean, I'm excited about it. Of, of, on a from a personal perspective, Love Isn't Blind is way more fun for me to do. Mm-hmm. And actually, I'm in San Francisco right now because I just did the second ever queer version, and I made my first lesbian match, and it was incredible. The chemistry <laughs> was so hot. I was like, "Am I gay?" <laughs> but then the other thing is that was so interesting is I wanted to create this like feminist show where the men can't speak, but the queer version felt way more feminist. Well, I'm sure it was because <laughs> it was all females. <laughs> There's just no. Well, and some of it was no. There were there were straight men on stage for sure because the bachelor oh. was bisexual. Yeah, so okay, I had okay. two straight men, a non-binary person, and a lesbian. And the non-binary person and the lesbian were the runner, the final two. They were the re- remaining ones. Mm-hmm. But something that was so feminist is the lesbian on stage. We I called her son instead of calling her mom because her son's 19. Wow. It was so fucking fun. He was so eloquent. He was so adorable. I loved him. Um, behind the Aww. scenes, I told him, you're a really great speaker. And he said, I learned it from my mom. We're both theater majors. But mm. <laughs> yeah, he told the story about how he was a Boy Scout. And there was this 50 mile trek they were supposed to go on. They were down a chaperone. And so he jokingly floated it with his mom. And she was like, I'm game. She bought her equipment, whatever. And went on this it turned out to be a 57 mile trek in August. She was the first woman or you know, mom ever to join the Boy Scouts for this trek. And because of her, now other moms have joined. So it became this mm. amazingly feminist show and Mm -hmm. it was interesting i like enjoyed it more and it was like more feminist and interesting than having the straight men shut the fuck up briefly backing up to the to the ai stuff too because i i love all this what i love hearing is that you are searching for the context in which to put this very specific tool that exists in 2023 into a show and that's what we're all doing with these platforms meaning like should i use chat gpt to like write a, an email to an important client? No, I don't I don't think I should do that. But should I use it to like generate names for a YouTube headline that uh, that maybe I am struggling with and is it going to nail it? No, but is it going to give me a few phrases that I that I the human can then turn into something? Yes. And so where does the tool and its abilities fit into a live comedy show? Well, it's not the comedian. It has to be the other it has to be the foil or the like you said the guy on the god mark. Like Right. The other thing is like is the AI character kind of like a wrestling style uh like a luchador kind of villain that we can all boo together (laughs) that's really fun yeah that gives it a comedic context that you have to create around it right right although i there were teeny tiny moments where the show felt almost anti-tech and i didn't like those moments right so Mm, that's the thing is like do i want them booing the tech I i want ultimately for it to feel like positive and joyful and like we're can we work together and so far the humans are winning but i don't know it is scary i mean the other thing was so fascinating is 
the human who had the most points, you know, does the final round, goes head to disembodied head with the AI, this guy, Brad, who wrote this amazing <laughs> song. And he was laid off from his copywriting job recently <gasps> because he was replaced by AI. By AI. Wow. Were they improv comedians or stand-up comedians? What's their, Both, their background? And I'm realizing that I need improvisers, not stand-ups. Improvisers, and I, yes. And like he improvised a song and I didn't realize till after that he actually has specifically right. years of musical improv experience. This is a pitch for you, Allie. The winner, the comedian who wins should come back the next month as the prompt giver to the AI. Actually, Lindsay, I was inspired by your show at UCB where someone personified ChatGPT and was just a fucking weirdo. That's the other scenario. I'm in a show at UCB called Quick and Funny Musicals. And this month's show is a picket line and it's about the writer's strike. And obviously the writers are very concerned about getting replaced by AI as they should be. And so at one point, this one writer has a literal love affair with chat GPT and the song <laughs> is called me and AI. And another one of the actors portrays the AI and they fall in love. <laughs> as we've already covered uh, on our replica episode, yes. falling in love with a chatbot. Yes. Okay. Well, I think we need to move on from my shenanigans for now and welcome some new shenanigans, which is our guest. So uh, before that, Matt, do you have my most favorite activity trivia? Yes, it's, you know, no one wants to do this. I want to do it. I like trivia. Thank you. (laughs) Lindsay's the only one. (laughs) This week we are celebrating 20 years of... Of two girls, one podcast. (laughs) Oh, thank Yes, 20 years. We did it. We we started this in our early 20s and it's still going. (laughs) No, Second Life. Uh, Second Life, 20 20 years ago, 2003. uh, As we will learn shortly, Second Life has often been in the news for extraordinary things that the community creates or does and how that affects real world economies politics and more that's my favorite part of the internet is when furries get together in a virtual world and then they do something or say something or build something that becomes newsworthy you know we we love that i like that you specifically said furries yes of course (laughs) why wouldn't i uh you're gonna get four stories of extraordinary projects or events in second life all of these items are real Except one psychotic one that you made up. <laughs> Again, you're looking for the fake Second Life story that I just made up. Are you prepared? Yes, I'm excited. A, someone recreated Amsterdam in Second Life. That is, several notable streets and landmarks, to be exact, not the whole city. Uh, this included a public square, a canal with boats, a train station, and of course, a red light district full of sex shops and places for sex workers, virtual sex workers, to ply their trade. Uh, this virtual city became so popular in Second Life that in March 2007, this virtual real estate sold at auction on eBay for $50,000. That is choice A. Wow. Or is it choice B? Several real-world nation-states have opened embassies on Second Life's Diplomacy Island where visitors can talk with computer-generated ambassadors about visas, 
trade and other issues. These countries, as of this uh, writing, this episode, include the Maldives, Sweden, Serbia, Estonia, North Macedonia, whatever that is. You don't know about North Macedonia. Sorry, apologies to all of our North Macedonian listeners. I fucking we hope there's you. at least one. Yeah. The Philippines, Albania, and Malta. So, virtual embassies inside Second Life. That is choice B. Choice C, in August 2006, at the age of 83, legendary author Kurt Vonnegut sat down for an in-depth interview in front of an audience of 100 avatars from around the world inside a virtual broadcast center in Second Life. Uh, Vonnegut talked about a wide range of topics, including virtual reality, the internet, and all of these technologies' effect on human happiness. He died the following year, making this Second Life interview his last. Wow. D... In 2009, the Internal Revenue Service put the finishing touches on IRS Careers Island, a virtual recruiting center inside Second Life where potential IRS employees can get career tips, training, and even drive on a race car track for fun. In interviews, representatives for the IRS told media that this was a big success and saved them millions on advertising and recruitment costs. That is choice D. D is fake. Whoa. Wow. IRS Island. Hang on. Hang on. E, all of these are real. F, none of them are real. Oh, geez. I think it's D or E. Fuck. I just feel like I would know if Kurt Vonnegut's last interview (laughs) was virtual like i just feel like i would have found that out at some point in the last 20 years like how did i not know that so maybe it's f i no i i'm gonna go with kurt vonnegut not being real i think the government is dumb enough to put a lot of (laughs) things that should not be on the internet just out there for people to practice i feel like they're so bad at getting anything done that how on earth would they get second life mm, together mm, so that's why mm-hmm. I, i'm gonna stick with the irs okay so okay. ali goes with d that the irs career island is fake Lindsay, you're leaning toward kurt yeah. vonnegut is i'm that, gonna go you with c that? kurt you're going kurt with vonnegut, c. yeah got it we will find out which of these answers is fake after this very important commercial interruption Hi, y'all. It's me, Lindsay's alternate character, which is a baby rhinoceros, here to welcome you all and say thank you to everyone who contributes to our Patreon, but especially the people who contribute at the $10 or more level. Baby Rhino wants to say thanks to Wesley Cordell, Jerry Duran, Jessica Fox, Kathy Phillips, Matthew Scott, Melissa Elliott, William, Jessica Kybell, Kelsey Murray, and Ken M. Thank you all so very much. Without this, Lindsay and Allie would never have to figure out how to say cool and weird thank yous to all of you to show you how much you mean to us. But you mean that much to us. And if anyone here is wondering, how can I get Lindsay and Allie to use weird voices to thank me? All you gotta do is donate to our Patreon, patreon.com slash 2G1P at the $10 or more level. Thanks! And see you IRL. Maybe never. And now a real help wanted advertisement entitled Cat from the best website for sourcing secondhand animals. Next door, courtesy of Best of Next Door. Sun Knight, bye, daughter. Had a guy over that she met on a date app. 
When he left, he took our cat. What can I do? The only thing we have is his number. <sighs> he said if we send him cash, he'll return the cat, which we are not that stupid. I want my cat back. <laughs> I behead him for 10 years. Let the cat go. Let it go. Cats are not great. Just let them go. I mean, they're fine, but they are assholes. It's like, yeah. okay. Get a new cat. Get a dog. Get a dog. Get a dog. That's the best way to handle this. Or Get a dog. just be free of having to clean up another living thing's shit for the rest yeah, of don't its get life. Anything. You know, just, you're mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. Every single guy I have gone out with in the past month has a cat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. This is like a phenomenon. Like in the pandemic, every man got right. a cat. Yeah. Oh, but really? two of them, yes. two of these dudes that I have gone out with in the last month, have three cats. <laughs> oh, that's too they, many. They that's are too many. single yeah, that's humans living alone, and they have three cats. No. Well, Hard here's pass. the problem. When a woman does it, she's a crazy cat lady. When a man does it, he's a cat dad. He's a crazy cat man. Yeah, yeah let's go with I that. don't know that there's any... Yeah, I don't think he gets a pass on any of that. Like, my friend was <laughs> like, it's either one or three cats too many. Because one cat is too many. But once you have one cat, you can kind of see why you get another cat so they have somebody else to be an asshole with. It's fine. Okay, right? Mm. Once you have three cats, now there's two assholes and an idiot. And, like, you have to take care of the idiot. Have you been to these men's these men's houses with three cats do they is it clean does it smell like cat is there fur everywhere one of them i have seen multiple times oh yes and there is a lot of fur everywhere but i don't really like him yet right i mean he's fine but i was like look but you love the cat here's the thing i'm just allergic (laughs) to cats so it fuels my dislike of cats but i actually think they're cute and because i'm not trying to court them they all love me like cats love me they rub up against me they don't you know scratch or whatever they're just like i'll sit next to her she's chill i think about this every now and then like imagine you fall madly in love with the perfect person you have met your soulmate and there is no one else on this earth for you but you're deathly allergic to cats and they're a cat person and that's like a deal not a deal breaker but it's like i've always been a cat person and you have they have to change their whole life to suit you if we are that in love with each other they will be ready to pay for me to never smell the cat mm, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you're gonna are you rich is someone cleaning the house every other day how many robobot cat hair cleaners yeah, do we yeah, have yeah. and sure. i'm never changing the litter box it's fine you already had sure. this cat that's why i don't want kids but i'm totally fine with men who have kids it's their kid mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, and you can't i guess i mean like you can't be allergic to humans you can't i really think that i have been allergic to some people i'm very allergic to a lot of humans <laughs> yeah no i mean i think that my literal vagina was telling me not to date certain people and she would be like upset and like have all kinds of problems she never had except when i was sleeping with certain people and then she would be like we're not into this our ph is effed stop sleeping with this man and i was like okay fine your talking vagina should have its own podcast i think that would be a huge hit she's very powerful i've already told you like my period is so regular and so strong that other my friends call my period the dictator it's like if you hang out with Lindsay too much your cycle will get fucked up it's gonna get closer to hers no matter what you try oh i was hoping it was like a dictator pun but yeah no 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 she's it's just her and the moon nothing else 
So what I'm hearing is we've offended cat owners, people with vaginas, and North Macedonians, which during the break, I looked into our data and kind of scrubbed back way into the past to get a wide swath of listener data across the show's life. And there are four listens of this very podcast in North Macedonia. So <gasps> to those, to that person or four people... We have we apologize. You you exist and we we see you. Not we. Matt apologizes. Matt I, is um, also right. apologizing to people with vaginas because he's the one saying that you can't be allergic to people. Correct. I, I apologize. I will be typing uh, into the notes app and then screenshotting that and posting that to Twitter as part of my apology. Um, <laughs> and hopefully I will avoid cancellation. Is, is Twitter not dead? <laughs> Anywho, let's talk about Matt's fake news machine. Uh, yeah. That is Second Life, which we're covering today. I gave you four scenarios that may or may not be real. You're looking for the fake one. Uh, a, a recreation of Amsterdam complete with sex workers that sold for 50 grand of real money on eBay. That was A. B, uh, a diplomacy island with real embassies from various countries, including North Macedonia. Thank you so much. Lindsay <laughs> went with C, that Kurt Vonnegut did his final interview in Second Life. Lindsay thinks that's fake. D, that the IRS set up a, a, a career recruitment island inside Second Life. Allie thinks that's fake. Nobody is choosing that they're all real. Nobody is choosing that they're all fake. I guess. I'm, I'm sticking with Kurt. If if this is true, I'm going to have such a great thing to say at like every dinner party through the rest of the year. Well, I'm pleased to report that Kurt Vonnegut did his final interview in Second Life and you can watch it on YouTube. So that is that choice is incorrect. Wow. Ali's also incorrect because all of these are real. None of them are fake. These are all real things that have happened in My Second God. Life. That's wild. <laughs> That's what I'm literally you will not see me meet a new person and ask, do you know who, where Kurt Vonnegut did his last interview? <laughs> that it's is Lindsay's all new I'm going to say. Everywhere. I didn't listen to the whole thing, but it it's classic Vonnegut, really, really insightful, really in-depth. It's with John Hockenberry, who, who is a longtime broadcaster and was, I think he was an NPR guy. I think he got me tooed or was like kind of like a jerk at his job. Like this was much later, but at the time, a very re respected journalist and, uh, you know, was very invested in Vonnegut and his work. And so it was a very rich conversation that they chose to have in front of 100 people inside of Second Life. And then he just was old and passed away the next year. Wow. I'll send you That's the YouTube wild. link. It's, it's worth watching if, okay. if you're a Vonnegut I'm fan. ready. I'm ready. I'm sure one of these cat dudes will want to watch it. <laughs> yeah, Lindsay needs to watch it so that she can now have her new opener for all conversations. So. Mm -hmm. Gross. I feel like the IRS Career Island was uh, that's part crazy. Of a previous trivia. I swear I've looked it up before. I don't remember if we've talked about it on this show, but you know, you could set up a recruitment center in real life, which will cost you a lot of money and staff, or you could just do a virtual version. And apparently, apparently, it was very effective because hey, think about the people who use Second Life, especially back in, this is 09, like you got to be a pretty fairly technical computer savvy person to even get in the door and participate in a platform like this. So smartly, question mark, the IRS was like, hey, these are the kinds of people we want. What if we said, hey, come drive race cars at our virtual island and here's a, here's a virtual pamphlet about working for the IRS. I get it. Yeah. I, th I mean, they all seem very reasonable. I just, not reasonable, but seem very <laughs> like likely to be real. And they are. I just could not imagine that it never came up. 
that Kurt Vonnegut's last interview was in Second Life. <laughs> what? That's wild. Well, you heard it here. Or Matt just made up a lot of fake news. It's hard mm, to say. It's hard we to don't know. have anyone fact-checking Matt. Who watches I, the I often Google the things <laughs> that Matt puts in the trivia. All right. That's good. That's good. All right. Well, I think it's time to speak with our guests today. That's right. Our first guest is Wagner James Al, who is a journalist who covers virtual worlds. He was also the first onboard journalist in Second Life, as in he had his own avatar reporter up in SL, y'all. He is also an author, and his newest book, Making a Metaverse That Matters, was just released this past weekend. Welcome, James. Hey there. Good to be here. Thank you. Yay. Our second guest is also very amazing in their own right. Sparkle Sky is an artist creator in 3D and multimedia and has worked in Second Life and Virtual Worlds for going on 20 years. Welcome, Sparkle. Hi there. Yay. We're so happy to have you both. And longtime listeners will know that Ali and Jen covered... Um, sex workers in Second Life uh, before. And we've talked about, you know, oftentimes virtual sex work and things like that. But Second Life is bigger than all of that. And it is celebrating kind of a big milestone. So that is why we are chatting today. Well, I think speaking of the milestone, let's go back to the beginning. Obviously, my favorite part of your article in The Atlantic is that apparently Second Life had it took inspiration from Burning Man, which yeah. I did not know, but I I love I don't want to say I am a burner, but I love Burning yeah. Man. It's a very important distinction. Is Burning it curious. interesting? Mm-hmm. <laughs> not just curious. She's been many. Oh times. yeah, oh, no, yeah. no. I'm, I <laughs> love Burning Man, but burners tend to be irritating. So, <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I love Burning Man, but I'm not a burner. I mean, okay. I I have a fundamental problem with that comparison because I feel like Burning Man is so such an IRL experience, but something that you mentioned in your article is like, there's this atmosphere of just, I can walk up and talk to anyone, which is very true. And that that is then in second life. So can you just tell us a little bit about how second life came to be and the different influences? Definitely Burning Man was an influence. And then of course, before that was uh, Snow Crash, uh, the book that really envisioned in very specific detail, the metaverse. And uh, I, I partly started the book, with talking about the birth of the metaverse in, in Snow Crash, because uh, especially with Meta and what Zuckerberg and other people have said about it, they, they kind of talk about it as if it kind of came out of nowhere. Wait, they claim that the metaverse came out of nowhere? Yeah, they just kind of say, well, some, it's sort of some idea in science fiction that people have read about. Wow. So this is like a tech guru, just like not giving people credit for their ideas. Yeah. That's so weird. Or they would say, oh, yeah, it was coined in Snow Crash. But if you actually read the novel, it's very detailed of what it is. It's a it's a vast virtual world with user content creation tools and the idea that you can make money from your virtual content. That's all in Snow Crash. And it was a huge influence to Philip Rosedale and other technologists. What year did Snow Crash come out? 92. What year did Ready Ready Player One come out? That came out more, um, I believe, 2007, 2008, something like that. Um, Okay. A lot of the meta folks were, they've they mainly read uh, Ready Player One. You can see that. Like, they kind of didn't think through the vision of it. 
But yeah, the vision's <laughs> been live since the early 90s. In fact, uh, Neil Stevenson himself was involved in trying to make the metaverse even far back as then. And so uh, a lot of technologists were inspired by it. And then, yeah, Philip, um, who's he's got this real kind of California uh, trippy vibe about him. So yeah, he... Um, in the late uh, 90s, early 2000s, he was at Burning Man and just had that that vision of, well, what if we can make this experience that, you know, really it's only like 20, 30,000 people have uh, who are actually able to get to Burning Man because you got to go through a desert and you have to bring all your stuff and, and all that. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, what if, what if anybody in the world could do that? And also this idea that you just kind of create a whole civilization from nothingness, like the, the literal nothingness of the Nevada desert. So yeah, it kind of intersected with uh, the Snow Crash metaverse idea. And yeah, that's kind of the main origins of it. And he was already working on making a virtual world, but that really helped crystallize what it would actually be like. This is so funny because I also, I never like really played with Second Life. And I also did Mm -hmm. not realize how like deep the roots were and that Neil Stevenson and um, Philip Rosedale was, they mm-hmm. were ba- they're contemporaries. They're almost yeah. the same age, you know, and mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, Zuckerberg would rename his company Meta <laughs> Meta and not yeah. like fully attribute the idea, I, you know, that it, it makes sense that they would do that. I know you're so surprised that I'm like, yeah, that's taking other people's <laughs> ideas. <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of like when kids are like, oh, do you know this new song? And it's totally sampling a song that you liked when you were young. And then your parents are like, well, it also sampled a song that we liked when we were young. You know, mm-hmm. it's yeah. like people yeah. claim and reclaim something that already existed. And they're just like putting a new hat on it. I mean, it gets even wilder, which I get into in the book. Uh, the co-founder of Second Life, his name is Corey Andreka, and he was actually a senior VP at Meta, still called Facebook at the time. And he's the one who f- discovered the Oculus Quest, the the VR headset. And yeah. he is the one who got Zuckerberg to acquire the company uh, back in 2014. And then he started explaining how Second Life worked to Zuckerberg and the other senior folks. So that he kind of really imparted that vision. Uh, subsequently left. But yeah, they had the division. And then as I get into in detail, like uh, Meta basically ignored most of what he told them. Like uh, (laughs) one of the first things they said was like, you know, you have to think about virtual harassment. Like if you have uh, avatars of different types, especially uh, female avatars, that's one of the first things that's going to happen is they're going to get harassed or attacked by other avatars. And you have to consider those things and they didn't they didn't do anything about that or they kind of sidestepped that and then when um horizon worlds uh their metaverse platform launched that was one of the very first things that happened it was a um a female reporter came in and she was immediately surrounded by a bunch of uh dickwads and they were like you know <laughs> humping into her grinding on her literally none of this is surprising yeah so yeah. far yeah. in yeah. this interview and, uh, yeah it's not surprising Damn. Except to, I don't know, like for some reason, these highly paid experts in Texas supposedly at Meta, but they didn't, you know, think think through any of this. Oh, they thought through it. They just don't care. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, that's the real, that's the real, real, which we are unfortunately very familiar with. That that was another thing is there was uh, research by uh, Dana Boyd. She's one of the most respected academics in tech. and, And she said, you know, I did some research in VR and there's a propensity to cause it causes women to throw up wearing a vr headset right 
Yeah. And they're more susceptible to it for some yeah. biological reason. Oh. Is that right? There's been studies yeah. about this. She got into what's really interesting to me is uh, she even cited a report that trans people, as they're transitioning to female of or from female to male, they actually have a different propensity to process 3D data in their head, like a Tetris, Whoa. like a banjo 3D wow. Tetris. So, yeah, it might be on a hormonal level. So she publishes huh. and saying, look, um, there, there could be a inadvertent sexism to VR. And far as I can tell, Meta did not look into any of this. Wow. I asked five people, a, a bunch of top people, and they didn't either either know or they didn't care. So they've spent tens of billions of dollars trying to make VR go ahead mainstream without really figuring out, well, maybe it's kind of important that half the population like has a propensity <laughs> to the fucking puke when they Why do this. Why would so, it be? 80% yeah. of the medicine we take is only tested on cis white men. And then yeah. we just give so, it to everybody. It's it fine. It works great for us. We're doing yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, Second Life and other big metaverse platforms, you don't need a VR headset. You just need a a computer or often a, um, a mobile phone. And they also didn't think legs were important. <laughs> That's a, yeah. Just, well, and I, I think partly the thought too was uh, they knew there was going to be a lot of uh, virtual humping. So if they could, <laughs> you know, get rid of people's crotches. Decrease it. And, yeah. Yeah. Okay. There, there's even a rule. It's called time to penis as a, yes. as a variable. Is That's my what? favorite metric. Oh my God. I can't believe Allie didn't know this. Time, TTP, time to penis. Wait, don't know this. <laughs> it's a game industry principle, TTP, time to penis, that if you give the users tools to create 3D content, there's going to be a time to penis factor. It's usually almost immediately that'll be the first thing that gets created. People uh. start making dicks. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, I am that person that would like make a dick. <laughs> oh, so yeah. I can't, I'm not upset at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's dive in a little bit more to the community as it exists now. What do you think accounts for its longevity? Uh, several factors. One, uh, one of the main ones is that it has a vibrant economy. In other words, there are people who make a, a full-time living or a decent side income from the content they create. And by virtual content, I, I mean from... 3D objects to fashion to enhance your avatar to homes. It gets on the on the on the far end of it. You like you could buy a satellite or you could buy a planet and live on a planet <laughs> and real estate. So yeah, so there yeah a lot of uh, real estate and just uh, re uh, real estate management or you just enhance you know a, a beautiful property you know, like a lot of the a uh, lot of nude sex resorts of course. Uh, Ooh, what's the best one of those? I'd have to look up because I actually would look by traffic numbers how popular there are. A lot of them just there's dozens if not hundreds of nude beaches. Some that can get really yeah, X-rated. Like uh, for a long time, one of the most popular ones was called Bukaki Bliss. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow, so wow. A, so it's an here island I, of cum. Here I am thinking it's going to be called like Ryza after the like Star Trek space, uh, like <laughs> pleasure planet. That would be a good name. And they're oh, just okay. straight up called Sex Axe. <laughs> <laughs> Penis Island. So wild though, because it's all with avatars. Like I just, I, I kind of still can't get over the appeal of like sex stuff, but it's not you. It's, you know, some pixels. It's kind of like watching porn, but you're making it. Yeah, or you're 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 part of it because the whole magic. No, but it's watching video game porn. Yeah. Which I guess a lot of people are into. So, yeah, which and then you have an interactive. I mean, I don't personally get it, but it definitely it's, it's, it's a, <laughs> a fairly common activity. I think the fact that we have voice as well uh, 
really enhances it. It's not just about watching yeah. two avatars or three avatars or however many I, avatars. Yeah. I really think a, a lot of the, the sex workers in Second Life, yeah, they'll use their voice. And so the, the 3D is just kind of a visual component. And but you'll also have yeah, your people's voice and well, you can literally create any fantasy that you're into. It's not the majority or even like the, you know, 30 percent or whatever, probably more like 15, 20 percent. But uh, yeah, really, just uh, to get back to the question of why it's still thriving, it's just there's basically anything you can imagine. And there's really uh, amazing uh, professional content creators and again not just 3d content but you like um, there's a professional wedding industry so there's people who make a decent living or even a better than decent living as wedding planners and event planners and djs live djs live music and the economy cashes out to us dollars right yeah you can convert linden dollars to us dollars and uh, the company mm-hmm. makes a, a slight cut a small cut when you cash out yeah, last data I'd seen it was uh, it's like a five hundred million dollar economy a year. Which I just I just and this is a an, an observation and a question for either mm-hmm. of you. Like I do not observe any other MMO or virtual world to allow the the cash out to real, real quote unquote real money. I think that's what makes Second Life so unique. Mm-hmm. It is what attracted me. Not so much about initially earning about money, but it was because it had an economy where I could create so many things and I was able to cash out. I was able to buy things and I can sell those things to other people. And there are other platforms like Roblox, uh, which is really huge in terms of numbers. They, they do have a user economy and you can create experiences right. and sell content that will, however, they make it really hard for users to cash out. In fact, they're kind of discouraged yes. not to, to, to convert their Robux into actual cash. And they don't get as much of a cut. Like, I, I believe it's roughly 80, 80% the company keeps. And that there's also like a very high threshold where it's like you need to hit a certain amount of money right. before you can exactly. cash out. There are, there's been excellent sort of exposés of like, yeah, yeah, kids can make a living making video games, but they ha- it's like coal miners cashing in like yeah. coal bucks at the coal store. Like you can't take it yeah. out unless you're like really, really popular. Yeah, you have to get really big. Like I, I, I interviewed for the book one. She's actually a Jamaican girl, which I, I find really cool. She made a game with her boyfriend called uh, Starving Artist. It's huge. Like there's like millions of people who play this and you you actually create art and sell it within the game of Roblox itself. And, and yeah, they're they're making a really good living, but yeah, that's on the far end. They have to have tens of millions of people visiting and playing to really start seeing decent money. Wow. Uh, the user community in terms of the the money that they cash out of the system, it's roughly about as much as Linden Lab, the company that owns Second Life makes. So the company and the community make about the same amount of money. And, and that's that's the only one that you could say over that. Wow. Oh, wow. This seems like a good time to toss it to Sparkle. So uh, when did you join Second Life? And can you tell us about the things that you make and sell there? I joined Second Life in 2004. Uh, initially, I started making clothing because I couldn't find things that I wanted. From there, I just went on to making uh, ball gowns, fantasy type wear and I eventually got into wedding gowns and had a very thriving wedding business from having locations, planning weddings, 
creating scripted animated objects for weddings and doing custom wedding gowns. How many weddings roughly are taking place in Second Life every year? Well, I'll tell you, I've had brides who've had multiple wedding gowns over the years, sometimes wow. multiple in the same year. So really, it's very community that loves to have weddings and relationships change quite a bit in Second Life. They're just like us, guys. You have some that last for a very long time. And then you have some who in after a week of knowing each other, want to get married and have that experience. And they want to have that fairy tale princess day that maybe they can't afford in real life, but they can afford it in Second Life. There's actually a, a feature in Second Life where you can partner with someone. So you could offer to partner with them. And then if they agree, that shows up on your profile. That was created very early on by the company. And almost immediately, a, a wedding industry kind of evolved and emerged around that. Wow. I mean, of course, but <laughs> how many of these weddings are also people who get married in real life? I've met quite a few people who actually have transitioned from a second life relationship into real life. So it's not unusual. It's not a very high percentage, I think. Yeah. But I think one of the special things about second life is that it allows you to become intimate and a level that you might not become in other games because the creation process, the different activities in Second Life, and also the fact that we use voice as well as text is very important in Second Life now. Okay, so what was the time to penis and what is the time to wedding? <laughs> <laughs> time to penis could be one day or less. <laughs> yeah, minutes. Time to wedding could be couple days to a week or months. Okay, so the wow. dicks come first, and then people are like, I want to marry you, and you're animated dick. Oh, of course. It's just like real life. Come on. You start seeing the possibilities. You can't commit your life to someone who hasn't developed their dick yet. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Yeah. It mirrors <laughs> real life quite a bit. <laughs> Historically, I started writing about people getting married right when the platform was still in beta in early two mid 2003 mm. um it's and this happens a lot in online games in general like in world of warcraft or everquest going way back people would do this so yeah it kind of it's almost capitalizing the fact you can create anything so you can really go crazy on just having incredibly extravagant weddings yeah yes well, this is and this is i have a question for sparkle here too which is like or to James's point, it's like the parameters of most virtual worlds or games are like you can you you can get this item and it's this level and you can buy it and even if it's an in-world economy, the people who make the game decide what the things are. But in Second Life, Sparkle, you could create anything out of scratch, and so it's like I remember a long time ago you needed to like know how to use AutoCAD to make a table in Second Life, and so my question is like. How has that evolved and what tools do you use? Are these now baked into the platform? Like what's your creative process for building a wedding gown, a table, a palm tree? Like what do you, what do you do when you start that process? You can still create in world. It's not to the same level as what's currently being created with the software that's available and what has evolved with Second Life with the introduction of Mesh. Currently to be able to create something that's marketable you're going to need to know a 3D software program like Blender or Maya. And typically what I would do is I will meet with a client if they're looking for a custom gown. They will actually submit some ideas, work up a Pinterest board with me on what type of gown what they 
they're wanting and not only what type of gown as far as like pictures but what kind of emotion or feeling that they're really wanting from that gown and from their day then i take that into blender create a mock-up there if they approve it then i go on from blender into substance painter to start working on texturing and then from substance painter i take it back to blender do some lighting work and then into photoshop it has become quite a much more involved process now than when I first started. First, initially, I created my gowns in Photoshop and Second Life exclusively, and there was really no other products needed. Now you do have to have quite a bit more knowledge of these different software programs and how they interrelate with each other. Mm -hmm. And then these export into some sort of standardized 3D model format that Second Life is like, yep, got it. Now you can trade this gown for to someone else as an object right uh the format is daa day okay. you can make anything and it's not just about wedding gowns there's animations there's there's companies in second life that have motion motion capture suits and they actually hire dancers and actors to capture their animations wow to, to create animations wow so this is real mocap now you can also do that manually but there's quite a bit of a return on investment on motion capture. And you can imagine, time for penis. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very big part of the animation industry. <laughs> so actually, I'm curious, what are the things that you can do in Second Life with gowns, et cetera, that, you, that are impossible in the real world, in the sense that like the laws of physics don't apply? <laughs> Anything you can imagine. Or do you create things that are like pretty realistic? I think I... I've done things that are realistic and I've done things where they have little sparkles floating in the air, <laughs> 50 foot trains that flow behind you and float <laughs> with wings. I will never forget what early on in my design career, I had someone come to me who was a horse avatar and they mm -hmm. asked me to mm -hmm. design a wedding gown and bridal party set for their horse community. And so that is definitely, that was the first for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. It went really well, but you can have people who want something realistic. You want somebody who wants to be a fairy. Anything you want to have happen, you can have happen in Second Life. And that's the beauty of it. If you can imagine it, you can really design it. And there's a lot of really amazing communities. Like there's a mermaid community. So they'll have like a whole underwater civilization. Uh, Game of Thrones role play is really popular. So they've kind of uh, cosplay Game of Thrones. There's a huge just kind of cyberpunk, steampunk community, community called uh, The Wasteland. And it's kind of inspired by the Road Warrior movies and Fallout and some other kind of mm. post-apocalyptic things. So you could do a wedding in like a nuclear wasteland. <laughs> just as I've always dreamed. Wow. You know, that is what I would want to be doing at the end of the world. I mean, that's, yeah, we, we're practicing for when it really happens. So don't, don't worry. Exactly. I, I have one more sort of technical question that I'm sure Ali and Lindsay find boring, but <laughs> the value of your work, Sparkle, is like... Like obviously the talent and the time and the creativity. So you are spending a lot of e effort and energy to make an amazing custom thing for a person that has value and people pay for it. Do you have to acquire or obtain materials in world to then turn that into a thing? For example, um, someone wants a table. I need to get wood and purchase it from the economy 
or collect it from the world to then model it in Blender and then sell it on the market. Does that make sense? Or is that not a right. thing? No, um, I uh, was an avid MMO player. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay. There is no crafting component right. to creation in Second Life. They are, however, games that are, are crafting games and people who are creating readables. I, I just saw one yesterday where it was you had battle frogs and a plant crafting. But for creating gowns or furniture or anything, it's all created within your 3D modeling software. Now, if you want your items to be interactive, if you're not an animator, you would go to somebody else who's selling those animated products mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and somebody else who does the scripting to put it all together. So the beauty of the set of Second Life is that those things are readily available and pretty affordable. So what I'm getting at is like the source of value, the source of money in this world comes from people buying Linden bucks or Linden dollars from the company, then they possess it in the world. Then they say, hey, Sparkle, you're so talented. If you spend three hours making me a wedding dress, I will pay you 50 Linden. And then you cash it out. So it's like there's not there's not a virtual value in the world. It's, it's coming through the company to the players, then back to the company. Is that, I know this is highly technical, but I'm, I'm very fascinated by this. Am I understanding it correctly? I, I think so, yes. I... I will say Second Life's biggest asset and the reason that they survive is the creators. Yes. Without the creators and the content creation, Second Life would not be where it is today. That's so different. Most of the most online games, as you know, are like there's like a almost like a funnel where it's like I can do all the things, but then I pay a tax on the ore that I'm selling on the market. And that right. virtual currency goes back into the ecosystem so that it can come back out again. In this case, it's coming from the corporate entity into the creative culture and then back into the world again. I, I That's very unique. And I do I do think it's important for the, the rest of the conversation. Oh, yeah. I find it very fascinating. It is. And it's one of the things I love about Second Life. It really allows you no matter what level, if you are a hobbyist, whether you are a full team now of creators working together or an individual as myself working, you can make money in Second Life. You can make enough just to pay for your adventures in Second Life. It really is up to you, the effort you want to put into it and your skill level. And I want you to add too, you actually don't have to participate in the economy. You can just create for its own sake. And there's a lot of people who do that. Yes. I think it's very important too, that people have that option. I think that's a problem we saw with like the cryptoverse type of platforms where right. people kind of went in first mainly or only to make money. And, mm -hmm. and Second Life, uh, uh, true to its Burning Man roots, uh, for the first, <laughs> basically the first year, people were just creating for its own sake. So they're creating these huge collaborative art projects just because they love doing that and they love collaborating together. And then the economy got added on because you you definitely want a thriving community and a th creative ecosystem before you add that because it does it does change the culture a fair amount if there's a, a profit motive. Mm -hmm. I think too, that's that's a big component of why Second Life got, got off well, is when I joined Second Life, while I wanted an economy, I didn't join saying, I'm going to join Second Life to make money. 
It was the idea that I could buy and sell things amongst other people in Second Life. It fascinated me. And the ability to create was the biggest reason I joined Second Life. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, it was very much a shared community where people just gave each other things. And this, as James was saying, this still happens today. It is a very sharing community. I think that is also different from other worlds. Creators collaborate with each other. They share information. It's not very a, a closed situation where you can't find out what to do and how to create. You mean there's a place where people are not operating on a scarcity mindset and really just <laughs> building things based on what they like and what makes their lives better? <gasps> like Utopia. Amazing. Wow. <laughs> We're out here still stumping for capitalism boo hiss the the in, there's plenty of places on the internet where this is this still ha still happens like like no almost no one makes money on youtube except for youtube but lots of people make amazing content there you know so so it's this can happen this can exist uh we just need to structure it correctly i think youtube has a lot more capitalist poisoning in it than second life sounds oh, yeah. like it does. oh for sure no it's it's not the same but yeah what are advertisers doing over in second life is that a part of it is there you know is it inundated as you know youtube is no they've had issues where there's actually they had a lot for a while people could just have billboards <laughs> and then so you'd go through the virtual world space and there'd be these giant billboards and actually the company um had to regulate that just to prevent just, just giant <laughs> eyes there'd be like competing like you you'd your neighbor would build a giant billboard and then so you'd get pissed off and build an even bigger billboard that <laughs> yes. blocked their billboard and then it's this escalating arms race of just oh fucking God, insane amount of well, billboards everywhere you can't put billboards in a residential neighborhood you gotta regulate them yeah. to the commercial area like this that's clearly what had to happen i guess well see that that's why we have mainland mainland is like the wild west of second life where anything goes you can okay. have yeah. anything i love the idea that like petty neighbor shit is still happening in I hate that. Oh, totally. like, I hate if my neighbor it. built yeah. a, a billboard and i didn't like it i would not log on again i'd just be like whatever i guess this is over and other people are like no i'm committed to my plot of virtual land and i'll make it what i want yeah it to you might have bought it for thousands of dollars so if some dickhead puts, puts up a billboard that sucks and then it, it gets political like in 2016 um oh god some Trump, some fucking Trump guys, they made a like a 150 foot tall Donald Ugh. Trump spewing wow. fireworks out of yeah. his mouth. That was an allegory for the vitriol he's constantly spewing. Oh, they raided the Bernie Sam Sanders campaign as giant gargoyles <laughs> circling oh. around the, the poor God. Bernie uh, Bernie supporters. Right. There were campaign efforts inside Second Life. Is that correct? As, oh, as yeah. late as 2016? Yeah. Okay. Oh, even earlier. Like, actually, um, well, he's still a senator. Mark Warner, when he was uh, thinking of running for president in, uh, uh, this would have been 2006, that he did a whistle-stop tour in Second Life. <laughs> yes. That's uh, that's before Obama appeared and became, you know, the, the main contender. But, uh, yeah, they were exploring running for president. I think, too. Going back to what your question is, as far as like commercial activity, while it's there and it exists to a degree, it's really your choice if you want to consume that or allow that. You can work on your your little world in Second Life and never see any. Yeah, because it's not the core business model. Yeah, because uh, another way Linden Lab, the company, makes money is through Lantier, 
And that, in other words, you actually you own a, a plot of virtual land and then you pay a certain amount a month. So there's that way. And also a, a subscription, an optional premium subscription. So you pay a, you know, like about $10 a month. And so, yeah, you can totally not be a major participant in, in any of the economy if you don't want to. You can go to Second Life and pretty much not spend a dime if you don't want to. Or you can spend hundreds of dollars a month if you want to, or thousands even. Sparkle, is this your full-time job? Yes, this is what I do full-time. Yes. Wow. And how long have you been full-time doing this? I think I started full-time probably within about three years of joining Second Life. The first couple uh-huh. years, I was just kind of learning. And then a few years back, I took a break from Second Life to do some other things. The design process and creation process had changed from just using texture-based and in-world tools, 3D software programs. And so I had to take time to relearn those. And so I've been gearing back up again. In between learning those software, the software programs, I have been doing landscape and environment design. Mm. And that's per, uh, per a contract basis. People contact me, tell me what the type of environment they want, and then I'll go and create it. And usually for that, I use other other creators who have specialized in landscape type of objects. What were you doing before this? Like, what was your employment? I was a financial planner. <laughs> oh, wow. Huh. And would you advise people not to spend their money in virtual worlds? Is that something you must do? <laughs> no. <laughs> Only if they're talented. I, uh, I, I was working in a very high stress investment and portfolio management, I just kept getting sick. And I finally took some time off work and decided that wasn't really what I wanted to do. So I went back to school, got a degree in animation and 3D and graphic design. And it just happened. I happened to find Second Life. That's amazing. That's awesome. And it's been my home ever since. I actually, this last week became a lifetime member of Second Life. It was one of the 20... They offered a package of 20 for premium plus and 200 regular lifetime memberships. And I was lucky enough to get one of the 20. So that's how committed I am to the platform. Was it like a raffle? Was it like an award? No, you had to, you had to be, the cost was $1,750 for the lifetime premium plus. And it was the first 20 people who put in a ticket. And I happened to be number five. Wow. wow. So that's exciting. Basically investing that it's going to last at least 20 more years. It, right. I be- exactly. I, I believe in second life. Uh, I'm just, I love some of the changes I see happening. Hmm. The mainland, I love what the wild west aspect, but I like now that they also started within the last five years developing community. I would say like they're, they're the HAO of uh, second life <laughs> where they have like themed communities. They have, Victorian community. They have ranch community that just came out that is for the horse and farming enthusiasts, which I absolutely love. (laughs) I was wandering around riding on my horse this week for like three hours. (laughs) Delightful. Well, that's a great segue actually into something else in the Atlantic piece that we wanted to discuss, which is apparently there are communities for veterans dealing with PTSD. There's a huge, uh, I think it was 500 different trans communities. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that's uh, something I'm really passionate about is where you see the rise of communities that would be hard to replicate in the real world. So shortly after 
the U.S. got involved in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, I I think I just kind of uh, like most of these things. I kind of accidentally stumbled into it as my avatar reporter, and I, I was looking at a war memorial, and there was a guy in a, a full dress Marine uniform there, and I thought he was just role playing for a while, just for fun. And then I started talking to him, and he was actually there to meet other veterans from the war, and then invite them to a place where veterans could meet who have PTSD and other issues. It's kind of, uh, they designed it to be a very quiet, calming space. And they're talking about the rules they have, like they, they don't want any gunfire or anything that, that causes that anxiety. And yeah, they, um, they, would, they would have regular meetings. And uh, similarly, too, there's a lot of trans people or LGBT people. Wait, how do they even find each other? Is it it's just word of mouth or are there, bil- uh, there are billboards, huh? There are bi- lots of billboards, lots of competing billboards. <laughs> uh, you could do billboards, but I, I think primarily there's groups. You can create a group within Second Life similar to a, a, like a, on a social network. And so people can search their groups. Mm. But we use Flickr a lot at Second Life, Facebook different social yeah. media tools. And there's yeah. also an event calendar that you can list your events in Second Life. The other thing uh, along with the veteran community is I've seen people actually create memorial, I don't want to really call them grave sites, but they allow people to take a space in their region and dedicate it to someone who is no longer with us. I had a church on one of my regions where we had little candles and they could dedicate a little saying or and light their candle for the person that they loved who's no longer with them. There's communities that have storytelling and teach other people how to write. There are communities who teach DJing. I saw this this last week. There's communities who teach people how to run a podcast. If you want to learn it, you can learn it in Second Life. That is one of the beautiful things about Second Life. There is someone teaching almost everything in Second Life. There are people who make universities who actually teach real classes. Then we have universities who are not real classes, and they are um, replicating sorority life. So if you Mm want to be a sorority girl that you never got to do or a sorority guy, you can do that in Second Life as well. But really, if you want to find it, you can. I participated in a dance troupe for a while, and we actually had to choreograph time to music all the animations and they they go and perform these for other people this is so interesting to me because of course it would be attractive to sort of go and be someone else so for either of you what do you think is the most dramatic difference that you've encountered or that someone has shared with you between who they are in their IRL life and who they are in their second life. One of the first people I met was uh, her avatar was this really amazing kind of tall brunette cyberpunk looking character. And she had a monorail that she'd built and a, a home by the sea that was all glass. And it was really amazing. And she'd learn uh, the second life scripting system to create the monorail. And she was just really talented as a programmer. And then while we were talking, she casually mentioned that she was homeless in real life. She was squatting in an abandoned apartment in Vancouver and had a coffee can to get wireless uh, signal to her laptop. Oh, my gosh. And her her neighbors were crackheads. So she's like she's in this mansion and she can fucking hear like people screaming and pounding the walls next door to her. 
but she had this kind of escape from that with this this beautiful mansion that she was in. So she was homeless for a while, though she uh, she learned the tool so well that they, people started hiring her and it helped get her out of the situation and get her own apartment in real life. Oh, wow. that's amazing. Do you know what, how she's doing now? Yeah, we talk sometimes. She's yeah, she's a full time. I think she's working for a, a, a university and does oh uh, tech work for them. So, yeah, she's doing quite well. Uh, Catherine Omega it's her second life name. Uh, again, that's literally one of the very first people I met as an avatar reporter. And it's that's kind of what constantly blows me away. You just kind of go in and you're randomly going to meet people with amazing stories. I think, too, Second Life is a platform that really works on helping not only charities, and but individuals as well. And this is a consistent process that happens throughout the years. We've had creators who've had things happen. And as a community, we pull together and create and donate to these creators and help support them through things that happen in their life. Additionally, we have a really large charitable effort through Second Life where you have different charities that come in. I just participated in Hair Fair, which is a charity that donates money for wigs for kids. And this was a two-week event that's been going on, gosh, I don't know how many years. I'm going to say at least 14, probably longer. And they raise thousands of dollars from donations from creators and people who come into The Sims donating and purchasing products that will donate to this charity. We have one coming up in at the end of August that is for breast cancer. We have Relay for Life that happens throughout the year. We also had one several months ago to raise money for specifically for creators who were located in Ukraine who could no longer sell. So we, as creators, got together, events were put together, the community came together and purchased items that were donated 100% to supporting those creators that were unable to make a living. Wow. James, I think you were about to tell us about the different trans communities that exist there. Yeah, so there's uh, around 500 groups that are uh, like a trans-associated communities. And what we'll see a lot of times is it'll be people that in real life, they have to deal with a lot of transphobia. So they go into a virtual world space to fully express their identity And so they have these groups as ways of meeting and and socializing with people literally from all over the world. We talk about the all the crazy time to penis fucking and so on, which is, is, you know, entertaining and fun. But on the serious side, often it'll be people who are LGBT, who it's like it could literally be a death sentence for them to express who they are in real life based on where they live in the world. So yeah, it's just a very thriving and very uh, amazing community. I think too, Second Life really allows you to explore those sides of yourself that you may not be sure that you want to share with people in your real life or not may not want to be committed to doing that full time in your life, real life, but it allows you that outlet to have that. So You know, it's interesting because despite all of this, which has been, you know, really magical, Second Life is not huge. Yeah. And, you know, it's sort of difficult to join. So can you talk a little bit about that? And do you think there will be any changes to make it more accessible or no? Well, they finally announced they're finally going to have an official Second Life uh, mobile app for iOS and Android. And that's going to come later next year. So that'll be a huge leap. I, I should emphasize there are platforms 
that I have been able to get past this kind of uh, low adoption. Like with Second Life, like I mentioned in the Atlantic article in the book, uh, Explore Even More, the, they just kept making the, the product so complex that 99% of people who try it would quit within like the first hour or so. But if you look at, for example, VR chat, it's probably 5, 10 million people. Uh, Rec Room is another one that has similar features and that's more like upwards of 20 million. So really the the ideas that were conveyed in Second Life, people have figured out ways to make it more accessible. And so I've grown these platforms to be much larger. And you know, I see Second Life as a role model in terms of the culture and the community and other platforms have taken that and run with it and made it more easy to access. Primarily just people being able to get through on mobile. That was one of the biggest mistakes that they talk about is like they, they just fucking miss mobile and it took them a long time to catch up with the, the mobile era. Right. Just for context, 5 million for VR chat, 20 million for rec room. What's the active users for Second Life right now today? It's about 600,000 monthly active users. So Wow, that really is small. Okay. Yeah, I mean, but though you think of it as kind of like a city of the size of uh, Portland, Oregon, or even though know, San Francisco is about 700,000. So, you know, it's it's large enough to have a thriving diverse ecosystem like we're talking about of people of all types doing all kinds of things. You know, for me as the metaverse ideal is you have, you know, hundreds of millions of people, but still keep that unique creative community and encourage diverse people to do whatever they want to do in it. I don't know. I think we've let everything get too big. So maybe this is good. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the challenges that Second Life faces is one of the things that is great about Second Life. You can be any size, any shape, any color. You can be a dragon. You can be anything you want to be in Second Life. Whereas a lot of these other platforms, when you enter, what you are is very limited. You have a Mm -hmm. limited palette of how your character can look and what you can create. That presents a challenge learning the interface and learning how to create your avatar because it's there is no real roadmap. It's like, just join and figure it out. Hmm. What se- I see Second Life doing now is they are coming out with their own, finally, a three, uh, a much better and improved avatar that users can start off with. And they've brought back the mentor system, which I think will help a lot. Second Life is not easy to start with because it's not, it's so unusual as far as how it works and how you can put your avatar together and what you can do. People come in, they're like, what's the objective? How does this game work? And hmm. Second Life's not really a game. It's a world. It's a, a, a life. It really is a Second Life. And that's sometimes hard to communicate if you haven't been participating or really understand Second Life, if you just come up from an MMO background, you're looking at like, where do I mine? Where do I beat my monster? And those things do exist. You can do them in Second Life, but that is not the overall arc of Second Life. To Ali's point, like this is not for everyone in a lot of ways and therefore may never be mainstream. And maybe that's good. I don't know. What do you, what do you both think about that? Do you like it being small? If you look at uh, metaverse platforms with the definition of a virtual world that you can customize avatars and create content, it's it's upwards of 500 million people that are in them. And I would include Roblox, Minecraft mm-hmm. to a certain extent. So it is actually 
mainstream in terms of just the mass amount of users. These platforms, for sure, I guess I mean, to, you know, to Sparkle's point of like, Minecraft and Fortnite have a goal, whereas Second Life is like, I don't know, figure it out. And I, I yeah. guess I would argue that most people are not comfortable with that or interested in it. Yeah, I get into it in a lot of my book because when they first launched Second Life, they they did position it as a game, like an online mm-hmm. game, like Sims Online. They even had mm-hmm. a uh, a rating system and an achievement system so you could become the most popular person. <laughs> and a year or two after launch, they did get rid of that kind of game game based system and i think that was a mistake or at least they can you can have a game structure that's sort of very light and meta you don't have to do it if you don't want to but to just to give people kind of a structure to get started on because really right. what they decided is that well, no we're gonna keep a burning man spirit and just say it's not a game it's whatever you want it to be but really we found out that like 99 of people just don't want that per se, like they're still figuring out what their identity is in their first life. And then this company says, well, now you've got to figure out what you're going to do. Like, you know, what your existential reason for being is going to be in a 3D space and you're going to pay us money for it. And so, yeah, most people just kind of freaked out. But as we've seen with the just how large this space can be that you can add some kind of game structure, some kind of, uh, you know, sort of training wheels in the beginning to get people into it. And, and I'm hopeful we'll see that with Second Life, especially as they roll out the mobile version, just to encourage people to build off of it. What I'm wondering is, I mean, and Sparkle, you already kind of commented on how you're very excited for the changes that are coming forward. There's a mobile version. What are the things that you think are going to be the future of Second Life? And what are you feeling as the the interactions are evolving and the platform itself is evolving. I think that Linden Labs is definitely trying to go to a more subscription-based model to be able to develop the platform more. I see it more and more with the creation of Belisaria. That's their themed homes. With the mobile app coming, with the avatar that they're releasing, we just had PBR, um, which is a new rendering system added to Second Life last week. So that just went live, which enables us to have better, more accurate textures in Second Life than we've had before. What I'm excited about is I love that that we have more of a community building through these themed homes. Not everybody wants a themed home, but a lot of people, like James was saying, they don't really know where they want to start. They are not necessarily the Burning Man person who wants to create everything. They kind of want a little house in a nice little neighborhood that they maybe couldn't have in real life. And I think those things have really changed how people look at Second Life because they didn't like having the billboard next door and constantly having to uh, to move. So I think those things help. I think the platform changes with mobile will help tremendously with the younger uh, users, because I think, you know, I read the other day that like people under 30 don't have laptops or computers. They're working on their phones mm-hmm. and their tablets. And if you don't have a really good mobile app, you're not going to reach them. Yep. And I think that's one of the areas that Second Life has been suffering is that we're not reaching that age group. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping that that's going to bring in a lot more people. I don't ever see Second Life becoming super mainstream. And I don't think that that would be a good thing for Second Life. I think it would destroy some of the creativity and uniqueness that is Second Life. 
I mean, I loved comparing it to San Francisco, which is where I currently am. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a lot of value in some cities being smaller than others. So, yeah. And, you know, we have this obsession with every digital platform being as big as humanly possible. But, you know, that's also clearly been a disaster in a lot of ways. And I I think often what will happen is that people will jump from one virtual world space to another. And you'll see that a lot. People kind of dip into Second Life Explorer for a while because their friend got them to come in, but then they'll go out and maybe they play Fortnite a lot more. And so we'll see a lot more of that, especially because we're seeing with uh, social media, the platforms. I mean, as we speak, uh, Twitter seems to be going into a fucking nosedive (laughs) that they cannot recover from. Uh, Facebook obviously has its own problems. So Social media has kind of hit a a nosedive that they can't really get out of. And so people are going to hunger for community, online community in spaces that maybe they grew up with. So maybe they grew up with playing Minecraft or Fortnite and want to look for a space as they get older that they can have real time interaction with people. So I think uh, platforms like Second Life, like VR chat, will see people uh, gravitate to who of them, especially that are on the creative side that want to get away from all of the algorithms of social media and and be in a space that's much more about creativity and engaging people from all over the world. I think too, that's one of the things about Second Life. A lot of my friends I've known 10, 15 years, some since from when I started, relationships, not necessarily marriages, but relationships (laughs) as friends last a really long time in Second Life. People get to know each other, not just in the platform, but they meet real life. They communicate on a daily basis about what's happening in their lives, not about a game necessarily. Mm -hmm. It can be that too, but there's a lot of mixture of real life and virtual life and second life. It's not just one or the other. All right. Well, that was beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was great. We're so glad you could, you know, celebrate the 20th anniversary with us. Yeah. Love doing it. Next year, we'll buy Second Life a beer. (laughs) (laughs) Again, the internet has come back at me with wholesome and also time to penis ratio, which is something that I did not know about until today. (laughs) I'm really happy about it. About the time to penis specifically. Yeah. I mean, it's not surprising, but it's wonderful. Yeah. There's um, the news, the new Zelda game, which has been out for a month or two, is is a beautiful, extraordinary, epic fantasy heroic game in a very wholesome world filled with creatures and people and hope and light and darkness and good versus evil. And you're on this epic quest to truly save the world from a from an ancient evil. And then there's a whole like system where you can build contraptions where you're like, I'm gonna pick up this log and connect a fan to it and then put a sail on it. And then I made this boat and I'm gonna sail across this island. Like you can put all shit together and it's really creative and it's re- and day one you videos were on YouTube of like, I made a giant penis and I'm whacking this bad guy with a penis that spins around and yes. it shoots fire. And everyone is like, TTP? Because that's what you want. You want your penis to shoot fire. Yes. <laughs> I, I completely get it. It's the craziest thing ever. You have a weird little limb <laughs> that changes in size. I mean, I would play with mine all day. I get it. I get it. My friends quoted me as saying, I mean, penises are kind of like clowns. They're like weird and goofy and sometimes a little bit scary but you still want to play with them (laughs) well good talk which which description is most accurate no i think they're all they're all accurate it's it's (laughs) it's a very strange 
object. I there was something that I kept not that, that I found fascinating throughout the interview, which was Lindsay. You always talk about scarce or manufactured scarcity, which is like problematic and it's yeah. capitalistic and whatever. And and I obviously agree with you. But what I do find amazing about a platform like Second Life is that land virtual space while not really scarce, you know, it's infinite, is made scarce in a virtual world. So like, and therefore it has value. But, and also a creator's time and talent is also scarce where, and therefore it has value, which is why Sparkle can make her full-time living. Unbelievable, right? So scarcity is a mechanic here that is valuable to everyone. And it's important to why this platform is successful. And I think the reason it's good is because as they said, James and, and Sparkle said, you can just go and not do any of that and still participate, meaning you won't starve to death or die of cancer if you don't spend money in Second Life. But if you want to take it to the next level and pay for an amazing wedding dress, that is a scarcity that you that has value. And that's the reason creators make money and the reason Linden Labs makes money. And that modified scarcity is like the sweet spot of an online community. I don't know. I think there's a difference between scarcity and value. You can assign something value even if it's not scarce. You know yes. what I mean? You can right. decide that, hey, even though there is infinite land in Second Life, I would like to be near this thing. And Correct. so that's where I'm choosing to buy my land, which is Correct. different than manufactured scarcity. Yeah, that, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, there are. there is an infinite number of Legend of Zelda games to buy on the Nintendo eShop, but I paid sixty dollars because it, that's a. I really want to play this game, and it's an amazing game. You know what I mean? Like, right. it's exactly. not scarce, but it's still valuable. Exactly. So I think that's where we should, as opposed to like getting all excited about like making something exclusive or creating mm -hmm. a, a scarcity mindset, we could say, yeah, we're just all agreeing that that's what this is worth. That's right. just, that's like, that's just econ economics. Yeah. That's yeah. how art becomes valuable in any way, shape or form. And people are like, I mean, there's infinite prints. There's no scarcity of paint. We're yeah. not running out of paint, but this painting is worth a hundred million dollars because wow, it's amazing and it's rare and it's whatever. Yeah, and, and that's and this is yes, yeah, so the talent is scarce. The talent is scarce. Yeah, and and when when virtual worlds were built on blockchain and cryptocurrencies and NFTs like Decentraland, it failed because it was market first, creativity second, as opposed to Second Life, which is all about community basically. Yeah, and also. It, it's like a collective decision because there it there is not a scarcity of reproductions of Starry Night, you know. Right. It's in every single college dormitory, <laughs> and <laughs> and yet we still think that it's valuable and important and influential, right? So I think that assigning value doesn't. It, we don't have to affiliate it with scarcity. It can just be valuable because we say so, you know, not because there's only one or because this artist is dead now <laughs> and that's powerful in and of itself. Mm -hmm. it, real life or virtual life. They're the yes, same exactly. in that regard. Because at any time we can also say this isn't important. <laughs> I would like to interview the community of veterans. That is the most interesting yeah. part to me. Yep. Yeah. 
Maybe James will put us in touch. That'd be great. Or if you're a listener who's a veteran who's hanging on Second Life, let us know. We could also, I mean, there's so many different parts of Second Life. It's just like regular life. Something I found really interesting is, again, in his Atlantic piece, it said something about it like being the safest place they have. Or someone was quoted Mm. with something like that or feeling like it was the most useful of their therapies, which is very interesting. I mean, again, which makes sense, right? Because it's like kind of what we've been talking about for the entire, you know, history of this podcast, which is that, you know, there might not be that many people in your community, but if you can hop into a virtual space, you can find people like you all over the world or I guess all over the U.S. perhaps in this case. The idea of Second Life was sort of founded on these utopian principles. And and in the article, he talks about the Tao of Linden, which is the the company that, that operates Second Life. And how it's sort of like following your passion and making the experience user-friendly, making the interactions paramount as opposed to any other thing being paramount. It just seems like such a pleasant place. Yeah, it's very much, I think, Ali, you brought up Ready Player One. It's very, it feels very much like that. Like if your real life is so upsetting, you know, you're homeless living next to crackheads, obviously you would want to plug into this second life as often as possible and lose yourself in it, you know? And also if your life is just fine, but you really want to be a fairy, you could also do, you could also escape and be there. Truly. I wanted to know, and I wanted to ask, but we ran out of time. If, if, if Linden Labs is profitable, because I think James mentioned that the company makes about the same amount of money revenue as the creators, which is amazing. There's nothing else like that that I'm aware of on the internet. But does that mean the company is profitable? There are some sources I'm seeing here that say that they generate $75 in revenue and have like, you know, 200 to 300 employees. So like, uh, who knows what their operating costs are, but that's if they're making, if they're keeping the lights on and getting everyone paid and they have 600,000 users and many of them are also getting paid, then like that's an, in, another internet miracle that can never, yeah. it, I don't, it doesn't exist anywhere else. It seems very user forward as opposed to profit forward. And it's still making a profit. Unlike Elon Musk's version of Twitter, which is profit forward and is totally tanking. Oh my God. <laughs> I hope it tanks. I can't decide if that's still wishful thinking for all of us. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, it was never profitable, right? So, like, is there that much of a difference? Yeah. Well, there's a difference in that, like, it was never profitable and had advertising, and now they seem to be pushing towards a like, if you want to even look at tweets, you got to pay, and most people will be like, "Fuck this!" So it'll be unprofitable with less users versus unprofitable with lots of users. Like, I think it's wild that it exists at all. Yeah. Well, I just mean, like, may, could Twitter one day be like, "Yep, it has." 600,000 users and they all pay and it and it's doing great. It's just for it's just for very specific weirdos. Like maybe maybe in 10 years that's what it becomes. I, yeah. It can be <laughs> great. So just incels. <laughs> um, <laughs> just yeah. incels. Delightful. And conspiracy theorists. Yikes and a half. Well, I mean uh, whatever. All right. Well, if you've been hanging out in Second Life and you have stories to share, you can share them with us. Hop into our Discord. Discord.gg slash 2G1P. You can also find me across social media at Ali underscore Goldie and Lindsay at the Lindsay Life, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, across all platforms. By the by, uh, if you have more questions for uh, our guests, I think 
Sparkle can't joined our Discord this Ooh. morning as of recording, so uh, she might be hanging out in there if, if you want to chat with her or, or see her creations. Uh, come on in when you listen to it. That's exciting. Fun times. You can also leave us a voicemail. That number is... 347-871-6548. That number again, 347-871-6LIT. Or you can email us, 2G1podcast at gmail.com. And, of course, last but not least, you can donate to our Patreon, patreon.com slash 2G1P. No amount is too small. Yay. Like Lindsay. She's small and we love her anyway. Aww. I'm not too small. I'm very small. Heart your faces. <laughs> Bye. Two Girls, One Podcast is hosted by Allison Goldberg and Lindsay Ford. Then played for the patrons of a furry dive bar in Second Life. I mean, produced by Matt Silverman in New York City. This episode was edited by Avital Ayler. Production assistance is provided by the Potglomerate. This show is a production of The Daily Dot, the number one source for in-depth reporting about life on the internet. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.